are listening to a podcast of The View, where we discuss today's topics from an anti-racist, anti-oppressive, multicultural perspective. This podcast is brought to you by the Church of the Larger Fellowship. To subscribe, visit questformeaning.org or search for Church of the Larger Fellowship in the iTunes Store. Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 300th edition of The View. Woo! <laughs> we are all wearing Meg today. Woo! Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations, Meg. <laughs> we love you, Meg Riley, today. That we are all funny. Meg. <laughs> Oh, God. When I was in the Washington office, you know, everybody would have these pictures of themselves in suits and ties on the wall. We had a picture of John Buren's like that, that we would hide around the office, like in the microwave and stuff. That's what this reminds me of. Oh, well, welcome to the 300th edition of The View. I'm in Minneapolis where it's sunny and warm. Asia, how are you? Um, I am in Seattle, Washington, wearing Meg oh, on my calico from years past, and I it is raining, and I um, yeah we're we're plugging along, <laughs> trying to things are more think more people are out, so um, you know we're we're trying to figure this all out, and otherwise I'm doing well. Thank you, Meg, for I think I've been on the show three I don't even know three years, four years, nine years. I don't think it's been that long, but. <laughs> Uh, congrats, kudos to you for this amazing uh, platform. Um, Michael. Good morning, everyone from beautiful, sunny Peekskill, New York. It is a gorgeous spring day here. Um, my tomatoes went in the garden last weekend, so I understand the joy of planting tomatoes um, and waiting till the last frost. And, um, you know, it, we're doing the best we can here. We're doing the best we can, and it's all good. How are things down in Virginia, Christina Rivera? Hi, everyone. This is Christina Rivera. I'm coming to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, where it is rainy and cold, and we had, you know, our AC on last week, and this week we have the heat on. <laughs> you just never know in Virginia what you're going to get. We had frost warning, flood warnings, you know, all that kind of thing. So we're just um, trekking along our, uh, we did a outreach into our Latinx community here in Charlottesville yesterday that will hopefully move um, at least $100,000 into, into the undocumented and Latinx community. So we're really um, excited about that, excited about the work around that, but um, yeah, it's really a great thing. And just wanted to give shout out to Meg. Um, if all of you don't know, one of the reasons why we're doing this is Meg Riley is retiring this year. And The View is just one of the things that she has shepherded into being. And uh, I'm really grateful to be a co-host on The View. Um, I think I'm the newest co-host. <laughs> and it's just been a really... A, just such a privilege to, to be able to be with you all each week and, and talk about the things that are closest to our hearts and, and our faith. So thank you, Meg, for, for all of it. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? Lori, how are you doing? Thanks, Christina. Um, I'm doing great. I am uh, staying cool in Phoenix in unseasonably hot weather and I am sad to hear that the while the nail salons are opening here and the freaking restaurants are opening here, uh, the cooling stations that usually help our, our houseless neighbors stay cool in the summer are not going to reopen this summer. So pray for us. It is going to be scary in the valley. Uh, Antonia. It's a beautiful day in Delaware. Um, we are also doing some reopenings that are questioning to question that I'm questioning. Uh, I am really excited to be here on our 300th episode, and I'm so thankful for you, Meg. You know that already, and this is really fun, Lori. This was a great idea. Thank you so much. 
And I guess I'm going back to Meg. Oh, I'm, I'm here. Where will you be today? I am here on YouTube already chatting with you all. There are a lot of great comments about uh, this, our hats and our fun that we're having. And there are some people who are not crying. We are crying. And everyone <laughs> wishes you well. And I'm so happy to be here today. So put your comments in the live chat and we will be chatting back with you. Thank you. A couple of things we wanted to round up. We're really excited to have the Commission on Institutional Change back with us, but they're just a couple of UU things we wanted to highlight first. Let's see, Christina. Um, so one of the, um, I, I love Antonia's comments <laughs> that came from the chat. So if you're not crying and crying like we are and you want to honor Meg, one of the fantastic ways to do that is um, to contribute to the CLF Learning Fellows uh, Fund, which has been established in Meg's um, honor. And Antonia is going to put a link to that in the chat. And, um, you know, one of the reasons we're here with, with our fun little ads is just to reinforce all of the um, service that Meg has done for um, the CLF and for our faith. And uh, the Learning Fellows Program is just one of those, and, but is a great way to be able to um, just, you know, continue the work that Meg has been doing here for so long. So thank you so much, Meg. And um, check out that link in the chat and give what you can, share if you can't, like, all of that kind of good stuff. Let's get it going. Uh, Michael, I think you had something. Well, I think we were just going to note that the, the UUA uh, released um, some guidance for congregations uh, with regard to the pandemic, um, basically uh, suggesting to congregations that we plan to not uh, have in-person gatherings uh, through next May, um, which for a lot of us is scary and stomach churning and uh, nerve wracking and stress inducing. And um, it's also a healthy dose of reality. I think, um, and a lot of people have been thinking about, you know, what what does worship look like if we have to be six feet apart from one another, wearing masks, not singing, not sharing microphones, not speaking loudly, not using the bathroom, um, <laughs> not having coffee hour. Like it's so much nicer just to be on Zoom and <laughs> be able to talk to one another and sing with one another. And uh, and see each other's faces uncovered um, in a safe way. So uh, just you know, a note that that guidance that we were pretty sure that guidance came out right after our Zoom pro our our, uh, our view program last week because uh, we don't think we talked about it, but uh, it's important. There's an awesome Chicago pastor who said we're going to open when the White House opens for tours. So yeah. Is oh, there anything you want to talk about? Yes, Conversations with the Sacred is a, a collection of prayers edited by Manish Misra, Manish Misra Mar Marzetti. <laughs> I should have known Manish so long. Uh, and Jennifer Kelleher. And last night they did a virtual uh, book launch. And it was a little over an hour and five writers, I was one of them, were uh, featured. We talked about what prayer meant to us. And the um, and what inspired the submission uh, that we read, and we had about almost 75, 80 people show up. It was very, very cool, and it was very prayerful. It, they recorded it, so I imagine Skinner's going to put it up uh, somewhere. So if you did miss it, you can watch the recording. And I will say it was really quite beautiful. So it was nice. And sir, not in not as an official commission question, but I noticed that your home congregation and my old home congregation, the U Church of Akron, adopted the eighth principle. And I, I saw the cool video that y'all made about that. Wondered if there was anything you wanted to share about that. Yeah, you know, it was a really exciting process. And I think for us, it was kind of a continuation of our, our journey to become an anti-racist congregation. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of time and commitment. And I think that adopting the kind of, I call it almost theological legislation, you know, at, at this institutional level is really, I think, uh, one of our, kind of one of, one of our main goals was how do we change our actual institution? 
And I think that the, the process was, it was really uh, exciting to kind of see how we were how we were ready for it. And then also the conversations that it opened up about what exactly does this mean now for our congregation, um, for our, at the board level, at the worship level, our programming and everything. It really opens up kind of a wide range of horizons about what it means for us to be uh, a church in our community. Congratulations. And that's a nice segue into the commission's work um, because we've been talking a lot about uh, national institution, but today we really wanted to delve into how congregations and covenanted communities can be part of this work. And um, so I'm going to throw that open to any of you who would like to begin that conversation. Well, I'll start. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having us back again. We're really glad to be here. I'm sorry. Please um, introduce yourself since I didn't I will. I'm Leslie Takahashi, she, her, hers, and um, have been serving, had the privilege of serving as the chair of the commission for the last almost three years. Um, and um, I have to say that Aisha's hat is just really in my in my view there. So that's wonderful. <laughs> so those are great. Um, so today we really wanted to focus on a couple themes that have to do particularly with local communities, including congregations, and that those would be um, you know, three sections of our report. We have a section about congregations, about living our values and about hospitality. And all of those seem really important because the reality of it is that the congregations are kind of the, the front door, if you will, for our faith. And that's where people come in. And it's also, unfortunately, we have heard lots of stories. It's where people leave, right? It's where people come in and then they encounter something that is deeply um offensive to them or that seems really inconsistent with what we're professing to be and they can't handle that so they leave um and so you know our our congregation um at its best is our front door and at its worst is our revolving door i would say uh congregations in our community so um and we use communities because we know that because our congregations are revolving doors often especially for people with um identities that we've been slow to embrace and understand. Um, we've got other communities that are forming like this virtually around the country that are increasingly becoming the place where um, folks are centered. And that is both wonderful. Yeah, this is a paradox. It's both a wonderful thing that we have those communities. And it's also a loss to our local congregations if that's the only place that we can embrace. For example, Black, Indigenous, people of color, people with other marginalized identities, then we're losing something as a faith. Um, so I want to just, before I turn it over, and I know um, um, I know that my colleagues will have some things to say about this, but um, I want to just say um, one thing about the fact that it is important to recognize that everything that we're doing in the commission's report is, is um, grounded in our theological principles. So I just also want to add my congratulations to Sir and the Akron congregation for their work on that. And um, to say that, you know, we really believe strongly that if freedom and individuality are the only things that we are offering people as our theology in these particular times, then we don't have much to offer. And I think that's going to be particularly true in a virtual year, you know, a year where we are predominantly virtual, where we're predominantly coming together in these ways. If there's not something that's more binding that helps us, um, you know, we're kind of running the um, ethics, um, the ethics, you know, um, you know, um, race every day, right? Every single thing we do now has an ethical choice practically, it seems like, right? Do you go to the grocery store? Do you not? Do you see your family member? Do you not? Like there are all these choices. And if all we're offering is freedom and individuality, then we're not that different from some people that we probably don't really support the choices they're making. So I think this is a really important time for us to think about, you know, our commitment to each individual and the expression of the, and, and our, especially our interdependence. So um, with that, I want to um, throw it to whoever on the commission wants to pick it up, but um, particularly on this issue of living our values, maybe I'm actually going to throw it to Sir to kind of recap, because we talked about that enough, and then we'll go um, to more about congregations. So, Yeah, I think uh, kind of to the question of hospitality uh, quickly, I think some of it is 
really asking ourselves, what do Black, Indigenous, people of color and other marginalized groups, and what do those individuals feel when they come into our churches? Uh, what do our church activities and justice work say to them when they look at our kind of bulletins and they see all the different things we've done in the community? Um, are they going to see people who look like themselves in key positions? And if they do see those folks, how are they being supported? How knowledgeable and open are we to efforts by like Blue and Jerron Trust uh, and other affiliate groups to helping those individuals? And how are we connecting them? And I think in our our digital space, you know, we are, you know, I think about where do we broadcast our invitation to our our virtual service? You know, are we broadcasting it among uh, spaces of our, do we have accountability partners within the community who are people of color, who are uh, justice work groups? Are we inviting those folks? So I think uh, hospitality, as Leslie said, is really that that first contact point. And for me, the how that, how we live our values there is, is really key. You know, if the worth and dignity of everyone is important, then it's, then everyone should be, uh, everyone's truths and everyone's experience should be accepted in that space. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to kind of favor the, uh, um, really the freedom of the individual and of the majority, uh, when really, as I think we mentioned in one recent episode, who's, where, who, who do we really see as belonging to us, as belonging to our tradition? Um, so I think our, and our, our goal is to widen that circle of concern, widen that idea of who is in our community. And as we say, when we're living our values, does this also mean the shared values of justice work? Um, does this mean uh, the value of liberation for all people, of equity? Uh, so it's not only who, who do we accept as our own, it's whose values do we accept. I think um, we see this play out in so many ways in our congregations um, when we are talking about we, you know, we're using the word we, and there's not really an examination around who are the we that we are talking about. Um, so, you know, when we, we, we just had this conversation a, a little while ago in, in, a, in a UU setting when we're talking about even our food pantries and we're talking about what are our staple items that we need to have in our boxes for our food pantries, whose staple are we talking about? Um, because different communities and, and cultures, their staple of food is different. And if you give them a box of food that has your staples, um, because you're thinking that's what we need, quote unquote, um, that that isn't going to be helpful. It's actually going to, you know, turn people away. And so who's who's the we that we're talking about is one of the questions um, I usually have on my wall and, and when I'm working in a, in a parish ministry uh, setting to, to just remind folks that that we need to expand how we're thinking about that. One of the things that we have talked about is the need to have some basic educational tools and maybe even a certification. I don't think we talked about this for a while, but we may have talked about it our first time on The View, that the idea of doing like a welcoming congregations for around issues of being, you know, diverse and in, in, inclusive and equitable. And, you know, I think that those whys are just so important in, in who and the who, you know, how many times do we hear someone say from the pulpit, well, we know we're an all white congregation when there are people sitting in the congregation, you know, for whom that is not a true statement. It's, you know, we can do that with lots of identities. And when we do that, we erase people in a way that is incredibly painful and important. That's just a basic thing. One thing I'm noticing in digital spaces, like in a digital coffee hour, which we were just talking about before, you know, is um, it's, you can see microaggression happen in a much more like flat and real way. And so you really have to be able to have people trained to say, nope, you know, that's not, um, that's not okay. And not just in the big space, but you know, in our, in our coffee hour where we're bringing 50 to 60 people in and we're breaking into small groups, you need people trained in each of those small breakouts every week who are going to do that if that happens in the small group. So it's a really important thing to think about. 
Well, and it's, oh, yeah, oh sorry. Uh, it's just to me, um, you, you were talking about hospitality and congregations as the indoor and the outdoor. Um, and it's so important that there are noticeable signs of welcome when people come in, um, but also that it goes deeper than that. So I, so I, I hope that there are, that there are layers to this. I, I mean, I can, I remember vividly the first time I walked into a UU worship service. Um, and as a queer person, the congregation that I walked into was like in the middle of doing welcoming congregation, right? So there were signs everywhere of here's what we're thinking about. And I'm like, huh, like, okay. <laughs> and and had I, I not had the timing to walk in in like month four of the welcoming congregation program, I wouldn't have seen all of that. And I might not have come back because nobody talked about it. <laughs> it was just there. It was all around. Um, so it's, it's, you know, I imagine that we need like things all around, but we also need people talking about it. Um, and, and it to actually be part of the lived reality of the congregation. So were, was Eli, Elias, were you going to talk about that some more? Or we can go to you. You're, you're muted. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, sorry, my did not want to unmute for some reason. Uh, I'm going to say uh, one of the things that, as we were thinking about uh, hospitality that, that comes to mind uh, is, is the intentionality, right? This, it doesn't, hospitality that doesn't happen is not, I think many folks think about congregational life as being at home, right? And the way that you may treat people at home. And, and oftentimes we don't even go, we don't even do that at, at that particular level, right? They, they are very basic things that we, uh, do at home, right? We put the snack out, we entertain folks, right? We uh, think about how to make folks comfortable in our spaces and well, and in other words, inviting them to stay. Uh, we, we may not do that oftentimes as well as congregations. Um, it's also the reality that how hospitality look like, uh, it's also very coded, not only in terms of ethnic practices, uh, but also regional practices and preferences, right? I would say, you know, as somebody from, from the Caribbean, uh, one of the things that, that it always struck me about uh, being invited over for dinner is that it was a rush affair, right? So, uh, whereas in the Caribbean, when you get invited for dinner, food is not ready, right? You have some snacks and you have other things, but we the invitation is to kind of be there and cook together uh, versus you walk through the door and start eating, you're done, and then folks get, you know, uncomfortable looking to the watch uh, and see what's going on. If things goes well, you get invited later on for games and something more casual. Um, I think our congregations oftentimes kind of follow that particular rule and, and newcomers, regardless of who they are, right, do not oftentimes know what are the rules of the space, uh, right, um, the game, how we socialize. So being very intentional about inviting folks into the community, into participation, right, into feeling uh, connected to someone, right, in the community uh, is, is really important, right, I, I tend to to think who is the, per the first person that I see in the parking lot in the entrance or where. Uh, if I enter to a sacred space, I don't see nobody until I sit down, then it's already too late for that first touch, right? And I think folks understand and feel that. And I think, you know, theologically that, that speaks volumes into how we experience community, either as an individual in isolation or as being uh, kind of called into a greater whole. You know, I was thinking about uh, Reverend Abi Janamanchi talks a lot about how people of color felt welcomed into his congregation, but they stay even a few years, but they never, they feel like the welcome never turns into you belong here. And so he was really talking about the difference between being welcomed somewhere like a stranger and really being belonging as if this is your, this is you, yours, your place. And I wonder if that was something that you all talked about. I'm gonna ask Mary to talk about that in a second about, you know, kind of the work of, on the other side of it, like the, why it's exciting and it's spiritual work to work on being more hospitable, right? Even if you're in the, you could easily not do that. But the thing that, you know, I really wanna also hold up about that is that, um, 
it, it, there's a lot of questions in the, or comments in the chat that I really appreciate about, you know, how can we move from the performance of welcoming or welcoming isn't like a jacket you take on. And so how do you, and so to your question, Meg, how do you make it real? To me, it's about, you know, do you do it just in the worship, for example? Well, first of all, do you do it in the worship at all? Do you have a consciousness? That's number one, right? But then that's the level that many of us need to work on. But if, even if you do, um, for example, in our congregation, we adopted a practice, this is in a different context, but we adopted a practice of using pronouns in our introductions for all a couple years ago. And, um, and then, you know, you go into a small group and people will, will also do that. And then when they do that, some people will say, oh, we don't have to do that here. Like, this is just us at like, we're just being ourselves here. Well, if we're being ourselves and that's a practice we've adopted, I'm using this as a very, you know, it's not a perfect example, but it's an example of like the performative versus the what's real and what's real needs to be that we're pushing ourselves to do that spiritual work of liberation, education, continue. We're always on, we're all always on that, that particular track. And um, so that's, you know, where I think is like, what level is it like when you're having a potluck, you still try to be appropriate, you know, not just in your formal worship. Um, so Mary, you know, you've talked a lot about that particular work. Hi, good morning. I'm Mary Byron, she, her, hers. Whoops, sorry, my son's coming through at a strange angle, so I'm going to get that angelic light again this morning that sometimes surrounds me when I'm, uh, when I'm on the view. Um, yeah, there is, there is a real difference between the performative work and the true belonging, welcoming work, and it's sometimes, um, I'm going to play off what Aaliyah said about intentional, sometimes it's about the intentional invitation to participate. Right, and to say, I'm interested in your view, your perspective is important. Would you be willing to serve in this capacity? There are lots of ways to invite people into the kinds of decision-making and um, real activity that go on in our congregations that are simple, simple to do. And, uh, and yet we have a tendency to call on the people that we know as opposed to inviting deeper into the community, maybe the newcomers and the people who we don't know quite as well. And, uh, and I think that would be just such a simple change for us to make. In, uh, when we were doing focus groups, um, one of the things, um, one of the questions we asked was, what would you envision your congregation to be like? And how would you know we've been successful at doing some of this anti-oppression work? And one woman said, and this has stuck with me the whole time, that when we walk in and people know that this is a place of humility and compassion and curiosity, then we'll know that we're in the right place. So that stays with me a lot. The humility, how to ask for what we, what we need and what we don't know and how to invite people into that conversation. I really like that emphasis on well, who do we welcome into our um, community to to contribute? You know, I think uh, one of the ways that to me we go past just the welcome and, and turning into a welcoming space is how are we uh, even in folks uh, areas such as hiring and board leadership. Um, so I know uh, at the UCA U Church of Akron, one of the things we really focused on was changing our uh, our uh, language that we put out on job applications to make sure that it was, you know, completely, we follow, we have some HR people and we have some legal folks that really helped us craft language. We followed the UUA uh, that would make sure that it was open to folks uh, of all different diversities and, and experience levels. So I think some of it is who are you Kind of privileging when you, as Mary said, when you are looking for folks to start to bring their gifts in, and how do we make those those spaces more open? I've also found that one of the things that has frustrated me over the years is the reasons people give that they don't want to be you. You well, they may not like that we're so blah blah humanist or they whoever they is right, and so I think if there is um, a transformation and embodiment of Unitarian Universalism as a faith that set, that has a central um, value of affirming people in the fullness of who they are, 
And Unitarian Universalists embody this as a faith community, not as a club that some people are in, some people are out, some people won't like Unitarian Universalism for really, I don't even know how much of it is grounded in any kind of genuine, I mean, what study did you do that you've decided a whole group of people aren't going to want to be UU? And I think it, it's just so off-putting. And what would it be like if, if Unitarian Universalists um, internalized this faith as a faith community and not a club? Because I think if we did that, um, I, I wonder, and I, I if, you know, that, that it's, um, I'm going to quote C.B. Beale, uh, preemptive radical inclusivity, we're going to set up who this space is and, and whether it's brick and mortar online as if you are already here. Whether or not, like you don't just build a ramp when you see someone in a wheelchair or a scooter, the ramp is there because those, everyone who has issues of mobility are welcome. Whether, you know, so that, that's what I'm, what's coming up for me. I want to really um, pick that up, and that's in the comments as well. I mean, um, my dear colleague Marta says welcoming is a way of being, right? I mean, and that's right. And the ramp is such a great metaphor. Not only is it a reality, but it's a great metaphor because if you don't have the ramp, people can't be there. So you can't say, well, we don't need, which I've literally heard congregations say, we don't need a ramp because no one in our congregation needs a ramp. It's like, well, you know, um, it's like hearing assist, right? Same thing, right? Like, okay, we don't... Anyway, and who's gonna, that's not gonna work. So it's the same thing about, about being you know, educated about the right way to be diverse, inclusive and equitable. You, if you don't have it, then people can't be there, right? They're gonna come, they're gonna stay in the back, they're gonna leave when the first totally clueless thing is said and they won't come back through the, it'll be the revolving door thing again. So I think that's really important. There's also a question in there about resources and good practices. Let's and I just want to, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I want to say something because I think something that I have noticed in my experience right, in congregational life is that we tend to assume um, that this kind of welcoming is, is only or particularly for folks of color. right? And therefore, we uh, uh, we, we become over hospitable in ways that makes it really uncomfortable. Right. We just draw so much attention uh, uh, in our embodiment right, and creates undue attention in ways that makes it really uncomfortable. Uh, so that's a topic of conversation, but I think something that, that I, I think ought to be pointed out for, for me is that we, we also have risk um, how to, particularly among white folks, right, and folks in the dominant culture, uh, there's ways in which they're also not welcome into the space, right? It could be around beliefs, uh, it could be around, you know, the particular understanding of what congregational life or church life looked like and, and how to worship. And there's also often some tension there. And I think for me, these two things are connected uh, because it's really about how open are we as a congregation to or as a movement to actually grow, uh, right? What are our, our boundaries of how far are we willing to stretch ourselves, right, to to change, right, um, and not just maintain um, what a status quo could look like. I think it's a lot about undoing culture. Like, that's what you're talking about, Elias. It's not. It's not about, like, there's only one right way to be you, you. The way that we do our services, the way we do coffee hour, that's not our religious beliefs. That's just our culture. That's the social club piece that Aisha talked about a little while ago, you know? So I think undoing that is really important. And so we have to have support to undo that, right? As 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 congregations, as communities. So the question I was just about to reference, which before you made that really important point is that, um, you know, there's a question about resources and that's one of, that's a pretty persistent theme in our report is that the congregations and communities need more resources and they need to be able to learn together. Cause this isn't, you know, this is iterative stuff. You need to be able to say, oh man, I made this huge mistake and I'm really, you know, I feel like really embarrassed that I made this mistake, but I know it's part of my learning. You need to have people that support you. You know, we, we all do that. And so we've really put a big emphasis on the need for regions to be stronger as deliverer of, of those services, right? Because not everything can happen at the national level, especially as it's become more and more and more and more expensive to, to, to convene at the national level. So, and now who knows what the future of national convening is, right? Because we're, anyway. So it's really important that we have, you know, ways to learn together as communities. And I think that's really important. 
Um, so, you know, we've got just three really quick slides, but I think we're more than halfway through. Maybe we'll just run them through and that might give some other ideas about where you all want to go with the conversation. And I'm going to invite um, Sir and Mary and Elias to take us through these these three slides. Um, when Thank you, Marcus. Just a shout out to Marcus. They are really helpful. Okay. So, Sir, do you want to start us and then we'll go to Mary and Elias. So the first line, it, it actually, when Aisha men mentioned the uh, kind of uh, this the idea that UU is in a social club, it reminded me of the this line and kind of that paragraph in our report that you know covenant and commitment, not comfort, should be the build, binding fabrics of UU congregations, and that so that was really drew on our commitment to have a theological basis that UU is really a the best, uh, I think to me, the best dream of our faith has always been that we are a people bound together by principle. And this understanding that our, kind of our, what keeps us going as a community is this, this kind of idea that we can improve uh, our planet together. Um, so, and then I guess this is uh, kind of drawing more on what Leslie said here, that we need to strengthen the regional processes. You know, one of the things that was so helpful to us at the UU Church of Akron when we first started our justice work was uh, the real kind of guidance we got from West Shore Unitarian Church um, in Cleveland, this was some years ago, um, and really just the other churches being willing to come to our conferences to kind of really journey with us. We had great uh, kind of examples from the UU Church of Kent about some things that went well, some things that didn't. It, we really, as a regional community, were able to draw on a lot of knowledge from each other. So I think this goes to a lot of what Leslie mentioned with resources. You know, how, what are some ways that we can strengthen those communication uh, apparatus and, and really kind of uh, make sure that those are equitable and inclusive that, you know, as we mentioned earlier, sometimes it comes down to who's in the room. Um, so if people of color and other marginalized people aren't able to be there, then it, it directly goes against that idea of kind of worth and dignity of everyone and, and us all making these decisions together. And then we can go. Do you want me to, is this where, I'll do this one, Liz. Um, and then a little bit more on hospitality that we didn't touch on so much before, but it's really um, also about making sure that um, we've got the right kind of leadership education that, that helps people understand what multicultural hospitality is about and how do we train people for this. Um, and when we're convening all of our volunteer leaders, who's there? Who is we, back to Christina's question, who's the we there? Are we making sure that we are being invitational to all the right people into not just um, participation, but into leadership roles? Um, the commission wrote a piece early on about the importance of nominating committees and the gatekeeping role that nominating committees play in leadership in our congregations. And it's very important to make sure that they also have um, multicultural competency in, uh, in how they're thinking about leadership in the congregations. And then making sure that we're providing resources so that youth, young adults, um, and other folks can participate meaningfully in um, those kinds of regional gatherings and leadership convenings um, where it's so important to have those voices heard. And can I just add that, that I love what you said, that you said have them contribute meaningfully. Like yes. there's a difference between just having somebody there and having them there with an intent to um, to listen and follow, you know, at times that lead and, and that participation. So thank you. And Elias, would you do this last version? I think you're yeah. muted. Yeah. Yeah. I think for, for us, um, it is important, and we've been saying this from the beginning, that our work needs to be grounded really um, as, as a work of 
of a faith community. It needs to be grounded theologically. It needs to be connected, right, to to our legacy, uh, and that means actually knowing our tradition and knowing um, our roots, but also understanding uh, the ways in which we can can grow and expand uh, that that particular work. Uh, and it's really important, I think, for this particular uh, work for us that we see the mandate of, of frame our conversation for those who are most at risk uh, in our communities, right? To prioritize uh, their, their voices, right? To prioritize uh, their perspective if we're really aiming for collective liberation. I think for, for us as well, we, we thought that thinking uh, through how the UUA can promote uh, education um, for, and, and when I mean education, we're thinking broadly construed, not only, you know, uh, degrees, but also training, right, conversations, development, faith formation, uh, events, etc., cetera, uh, across the, the, our multiple regions uh, in, in ways that would uh, not only bolster capacities, right, for how do we do outreach uh, to other communities, but also the ways in which we expand um, our own knowledge um, of who is, uh, how is the current shape, what is the current shape of you, who is, uh, participating in our congregations and who is, uh, even though prevented or not welcome or felt that is welcome to participate, is still connected, right, to, to the larger movement in multiple multiple ways. Um, how do we ensure a deeper connection, right, with these folks, but also invest in uh, leadership capacitation, right, and promotion, and in, in safety, right, survival of our leadership, particularly folks of color. We also think that we need to develop uh, more theological resources that center around justice um, in our faith. And, and this is more than just the, the, the more personal driven narrative of the ways in which we may individually be connected right to justice movements or as a congregation, but also, but also articulate right, what are the theological mandates, right, what are the theological uh, propositions that we embrace as a first community that lead us into doing this work. And uh, finally, uh, as part of this theological work, uh, we think that, that accountability has to be at, at the center of it, right? There's a notion of um, how do we understand what salvation could look like, uh, right? As an Eastern universalism, uh, as a community of faith that embraces uh, or that aspires to do collective work of justice, right? How does that call us into deeper accountability, uh, not only within ourselves, but also with those with whom we're trying to, to work for, for changing the world? So I've got, I've got a question, if that's okay. <laughs> um, so I noticed on one of the, 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 I think it was the second slide that, that you showed, um, there was a bullet point, and this might be an entire future show, and if it is, you can just tell me that. Um, there was a bullet point about um, developing a common, uh, and I'm, I'm not looking at the words, uh, understanding uh, analysis of anti-oppression and anti-racism work um, and is it your sense that 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 um, has been lost or that it's that it's present or where where does that come from um, I guess uh, I know that there have been many attempts to have common anti-oppression analysis in our in our association and i'm wondering what your recommendations are for moving forward with that so i'll take a cut at it and i know others oh go ahead for it go ahead sir well i i've had a quote um, from our report in front of me here from james cone uh, from god of the oppressed indeed our survival and liberation depend upon our recognition of the truth when it is spoken and lived by the people um, so one of the things we talked about a lot, it was that we needed to be listening to these things that have been said by oppressed people within our space for decades. So our, even just the um, widespread acceptance of those voices, I think is, is one of the things we're looking for, for this common understanding. Um, I think that so much of our uh, early days in the, on the commission were just discovering in which ways those those voices and experience had not really been captured and how we that that we needed to really have a robust kind of um conversation about that like where where is this information uh why hasn't it been logged why hasn't it been kept so i think some of it is really having a shared um i would say acceptance of of those voices and 
I think to me the the way that the there's ways that the UUA can help with this, yet there's also ways that congregations, as they start to embark on this anti-racist work, how are they telling their own story of uh, of race in their own space? Um, you know, as Baldwin said, nothing can be changed until it is faced. Uh, and so yeah, that's my the first thing that came to mind for me. So I think it's really important to keep in mind that having a common analysis is not the same thing as having one program, like one programmatic approach. And I think part of where we got into a lot of um, uh, furor among us, let's just say, um, over the years and decades has been around the confusion around those two things. I think we're calling for there to be an analysis that says, in order to fulfill our um, religious heritage and to actually live into that heritage, we have to recognize, face this, deal with this reality before us. And we're saying there are many ways you can do that, right? Because I think that's the piece that we realize. Like, it really makes a difference what, where you are, what part of the country you're in, who the, the folks are that are around you. I really appreciated Christina's early comment about the food pantry, right? That they, like just, you got to really think about context and everything and what size congregation you are, what, what your history, like there's a lot of different things. But what we are saying is that the tools that we have out there need to be there needs to be a place where people can go, like, you know, to understand what's there, what's been tried, um, who can be there to be a coach and a mentor and a friend and an accomplice, you know, and we don't have those structures. That's what we're missing. We're missing every congregation still today that gets into this work feels like they're starting from square one by themselves. And that doesn't make sense in this world in which we should be curating resources. Um, and a lot of them are already curated, actually. That's the thing. It's that people don't understand, don't have the relationships with the UUA, with the regions to understand that those resources are out there. So I just want to make, I want to make um, a comment between those two things, you know, that it's, there's an, the analysis of this needs to be dealt with in order to live into our faith. And then there's how do we do that? And that how to might be really different depending on where a particular community congregation is. But that also gets to the question that's in the chat um, from Dion about, um, you know, how do you welcome people who consider themselves atheist or other, you know, why um, wise non-theist? And when we're talking about theology and belief, and I want to ask Elias to speak about this, we're not just talking about people who believe in God. We're talking about our grounding religious tradition as Unitarians and Universalists and Unitarian Universalists. So um, I think that's a really important distinction. Um, and so maybe, Elias, you could talk a little bit about, about that Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that I'm, I'm going to there put it bluntly uh, is that as a faith community, we don't do deep theology, right? We don't. We are. We are in some ways. Um, and I am not going to say so much. I'm making me more convinced that it's not that we are afraid of it. Uh, is that we we uh, don't do it because we don't we don't know enough to feel competent to be in that in that place of broad conversation. And because of our kind of cultural whiteness, uh, then. Uh, Recognizing publicly the area of growth, uh, Ryan Grovenage becomes uncomfortable, particularly because we are an intellectual uh, community by and large, as a faith community. Right, I think per capita, right, uh, UUs are highly educated. Uh, I would say a significant percentage of our community are not only college educated, uh, but may have a master's degree or more. Right, and, and when you see that, that creates oftentimes a space in which folks feel resistant, uh, right, to admit areas of, of lack of knowledge and not growing. And, and I'm going to say that because uh, this becomes also the point in which our communities uh, go to uh, scripts that we recognize even if we don't oftentimes live by them. So I'm thinking uh, spaces, I'm thinking in my, in my own case, some of my congregations have been fellowship movements, right? And even if there's a switch or a shift, right, in that generation uh, that understand the fellowship movement as a more humanist, uh, there is um, a rejection, right, of the more spiritual components kind of in principle, right? And, and it's not um, a rejection of it per se, we just do not know how, how to do it uh, and how do we grow into that particular space. Um, so, uh, and, and I think that also uh, means that as a community, we do not engage in the diverse perspectives, right, of, that shape our common fountain, um, right? We assume a lot, but we do not enter into the particular conversations of what are the face traditions that really weave the tapestry of our congregation and our movements as, as a whole, 
right? Instead, we assume a particular threat. And, and, and I say what we end up doing uh, is actually we settled for uh, the a remnant of a Protestant service, right? Without being fully aware uh, right, of how we can change. And even the moments in which we bring other faith traditions into bear is still happening through a Protestant filter, right? Um, and what I mean by the Protestant filter is, you know, our, our order of service right, is, is very Protestant. Um, and, and folks don't, don't know uh, or don't even recognize it as such unless you kind of grew up within the environment. And, and, and for me, what that entails is that our theological imagination uh, have become stunted, right, to, to the point uh, that we need to really sit down and, and uh, reconsider, right, the ways that as a faith community, right, we need to engage again, be in the presence of the sacred, right, the presence of the holy reverence. Um, and, and that is not um, a dogmatic statement, right? The holy, the sacred, those experiences are across right faith communities, right? It can be the meaning of life if you're in the more humanist grounded, right? It can be interdependence, right? It could be uh, multiple things, but do it intentionally, right? As a, as a faith community and move into that uncomfortable space that was treasures to grow. I think I would, I could speak to that as an atheist. Uh, for me, the, the kind of what's drawn me to Unitarian Universalism is kind of what I said earlier, that we, this is a, a religion of principles. And I think that part of our uh, call, and I think what, what Elias is speaking to in this kind of really deep um, uh, deep dive into what it means to be UU is our lifting up what are those ways in which we as humans find the sacred uh, beyond just our commonly held uh, religious, uh, uh, religious traditions. You know, for me, in, as, a, as a black person, as a person who grew up in a really African-centered home, the wisdom of our ancestors was was lifted up continuously, you know, and as a kind of a humanist and atheist thinker, I think about what makes us special as humans is our ability to teach our future across generations using the written word, um, using things exactly like our uh, our eight principles and and just how do we honor that in our everyday life? How do we honor the people who came before us uh, in our justice work? And I think as you use, that's something we can definitely really reach deep into. We have a, a history of doing that practical justice work in our society. So I think a lot of it is just coming together and having those conversations about what is this, uh, what does it mean to be a community that has that free and equal search? And I think uh, one thing that Leah's left it up is what, what cultures are included in that free and equal search and understanding that the more we can widen that circle, uh, the more value it is uh, for everyone. Real quick, I think about a story from the collaboratory. Often uh, one, a, a good friend of mine in this faith, Kimberly Hampton, uh, is one of the greatest, I think, theologians we have. And she kept saying that you use need Jesus. And as a kind of atheist thinker and uh, sometimes an anti-theistic thinker, uh, I was I kind of, you know, I, we, we talked about it and asked her about it and she, she mentioned that and just kind of reminded me that in the vernacular of black people in the South, that just means that you use need something bigger than ourselves. And, you know, without these opportunities to come together, we never would have had those conversations. So I think a lot of it is just this deep, uh, deep dive into what can we, what can we understand as mutually sacred among us and Mutually sacred that is bigger than just the individual, right? I mean, I think that's really yes. critical. And, and you know, there's some posts that are going around our association right now about, oh, we're becoming too dogmatic, we're becoming creedal, we're becoming, you know, and I just want to argue, I want to argue right back with them and saying, no, we are actually uh, doing what we should have been doing all along, which is actually holding you know, holding fast to a faith tradition that is an incredible inheritance for which people died, you know, in our history and people sacrificed much, you know, livelihood, well-being, all kinds of things. And it's really important that we hold it. I think in this particular time when we're dealing with the pandemic, if we don't have that, if we just become a bunch of quarreling individualists over digital spaces, that is just not going to be even worth, you know, engaging in for a, a minute, much less a year. So I think it's something we really have to think about. I think, oh, what an exciting vision you all just put up uh, for who we could be and who we want to be. 
And then I think of getting from here to there. <laughs> and I'm really, really grateful that, that you've taken so long to really pick apart the systems. And I'm excited that you'll be back to talk about those because I, I feel like any of those bullet points that I get so excited about, I also can hear many voices of people who will be upset for very different reasons about them. And, um, and I think in this time, you know, we need each other and, and we're all up to here with pandemic and some people are way over their heads and people are really disproportionately affected. And um, yeah, it's, you all are doing really amazingly brave, courageous, visionary work. And I just want to thank you on behalf of the movement. And we are fortunate that we get to be back with you a couple more times to talk about um, some stuff. And so just to let people know, two of the topics that we, um, because it is hard, and I think this is going to be actually one of the challenges is that we're in the middle of a pandemic and we've got to have, still have to have some hard conversations. There's been a lot of emphasis that we've all needed on staying kind of calm and comforted, but the reality is the world around us is just being fractured even more by this. And so this is actually the time we need to have these conversations. So just to say some of the things we're going to be talking about with you in the last two are uh, reparations, which is a hard topic and accountability. So um, it's not all going to be sweetness and light, I guess I would say. Yeah. Accountability is a huge one. You know, we have, uh, as you said at the beginning, Leslie, it's a nice kind of completion that in the pandemic, some of the people demanding tattoos and haircuts and all kinds of things, there are sp spiritual equivalents to that that are happening all over. And um, yeah, it is really a time when, as one of the bullet points said that I went, oh boy, <laughs> I'm there. And, you know, our salvation is to be found in collective liberation. And so while some people hear that as dogma, <laughs> Others of us hear it as, you know, sacred, sacred word. And um, getting from head to heart, to body, to community, to all of it. Um, I'm glad we have each other. <laughs> I'm really glad we have each other. Any final words that you all didn't get to as we wrap up the hour? I wanna say that we are our own resources that when we think about the resources that we need to bring to bear to this, there will be some, I think that the association will bring, there are many that congregations bring, but we are our own resources too. And that it's by learning together through this work that, that we will make a difference. And the structures we're calling for to help curate those resources and bring them together, I think of as the living library, right? That will change and grow as our communities can change and grow. And so I just want to invite everybody into, you know, thinking of themselves as being a resource for this work as well. I think I would just echo the, the call that you use, uh, especially those who are maybe kind of struggling with these, these changes happening within the, the association, really consider, well, who are we, uh, what what which one of our ancestors and who out of our ancestors and our history are we are we really lifting up and who's who's um, who's the example are we following? Uh, I think that I really want to echo what Leslie's saying about these some of these online spaces and us devolving into just kind of argumentation around <laughs> around quote unquote identity politics and things like that. But I think we really need to consider well what has this faith been about who and and how are we how are we um how are we living out that example we look forward to being back we look forward to having you back and um i want to thank the crew for making this way too much about me at the beginning was very, very sweet and very surprising. So thank you again. Thank you, Commission. Thanks for your hard work. And we look forward to next week when we'll have a great show of some kind. <laughs> See you then.
This has been an episode of The View. If you would like to learn more about the CLF, visit questformeaning.org.